As Dennis said, we come this Sunday to our Advent week of joy in this Advent season that we've been thinking about what it might mean to be ready to see. So you're probably aware that the Bible speaks a lot about joy. Think of Nehemiah when he sees the work of God about to happen around him. It says, the joy of the Lord will be our strength. In the middle of all Job's trials, he talks about having joy in unrelenting pain. The psalmist says, let us ever sing for joy. At the birth of Jesus, we hear that he will be a joy and a delight. In John's gospel, Jesus says that he hopes that his joy would be in us. And of course, you've got throughout the Pauline epistles, especially in Philippians, this notion of being joyful in hope and rejoicing always and these sorts of things. Well, if I'm honest, I think that I have seen around this topic of joy lots of confusion and not a little bit of guilt or shame or self-condemnation that people just think they don't have enough joy. It feels like another Christian ought or should. Sometimes maybe we feel like it's a threshold that we'll, we'll never cross, that if you look at our artwork this morning from Dan Callis, that there's this obvious opening there and something behind it, but feeling like we live on this side of it, will we ever actually be able to cross this threshold into something that approaches what we read about in the Bible as joy? Gene Peterson has written that there are lots of common strategies for achieving joy, but that they tend to be surface only, you know, change of scenery or eliminate the things that hurt or to get rid of pain by numbing the nerve endings, or to get rid of insecurity by eliminating life's risks, to get rid of disappointments by depersonalizing relationships. And then he says, we try to lighten the burden of such a life by buying joy in the form of consumerism and entertainment. And certainly if you think of our ads, it just seems um, stereotypically to be that way, right? Like you would think that the real definition of joy culturally is something like this right, like being on turquoise waters somewhere, right, in one of those new fantastic yachts that you see, you know, and all the people on it have these tastefully tattooed, chiseled bodies, right? And then, like, to top it all off, they're drinking the right beer, right, or the, the right brand of scotch or vodka or something, right? This is our sort of notion of what joy might be. But, of course, few people ever get to experience such a thing, and even such experiences are fleeting, and they leave even those rich, chiseled bodies, their brains wondering if this fleeting experience will even happen for them again, and how they might get the next one, and maybe it'll never come. But the Bible, of course, distinguishes joy from pleasure, and in many places warns us that self-indulgent pleasure-seeking doesn't actually ever lead to joy. You know, you have the famous passages, for instance, in Ecclesiastes, where the writer says, I said to myself, let's experiment with pleasure. Let's have a good time. He says, but there was actually nothing to it, nothing but smoke. And you remember he said, I ended up just hating my life and getting in this really cynical place where he said, as far as I can see, what happens on earth is just smoke. It's just a spitting into the wind. But yet we all also know occasionally we do see something or hear something, or feel something that does bring us honest, genuine joy. And this is helpful to me, and I hope it will be to you too. 
that if you can just call to mind a moment where you felt, you know, a spontaneous childlike joy, and if you could even just think of what that is, you know, for me, it might be a sunset. Just think of a moment like that. Whatever you just bring spontaneous childlike joy. And now I want you to consider that that thing and things like it are constantly present to God. He is constantly aware of that beauty. One of the things that's, you know, I saw going on 20 years ago now, uh, when The Divine Conspiracy came out first by Dallas Willard, is one of the ideas that so captured me was, Dallas said, God is simply one great, inexhaustible, and eternal experience of all that is good and true and beautiful and right. So that the things that catch our minds and attentions, all the wonderful things from which we occasionally drink tiny droplets, he says, of soul-exhilarating joy, God continuously experiences them in all their breadth and depth and riches. And I remember reading that being kind of simultaneously thrilled by the notion, but also wondering, like, what? Like, you know, if you just got out your phones right now and went to BBC or Reuters or something and just looked at today's news, you would think, God's joyful? Like, is he not aware of Syria? Is he not aware of North Korea? Is he not aware of any number of things? You know, as you scroll through, I just remember feeling that sort of, what? Like, how can God be joyful when? Or an even more cynical thought might be something like, well, maybe God just doesn't care. We, we have an old, long-standing sort of teasing joke in the Hunter house that goes back to when our son Jonathan was probably 10 or 12, which meant Carol would have been like three or five. And Carol had her best friend over, as she often did, and they were playing. And I don't know, they wanted room on the dining room table or something, but this was back when the first Star Wars stuff was just out. And Jonathan had made this big puzzle of like the Millennium Falcon or something. And Carol and her best friend just like wiped it off the table or something to make space for whatever it is they wanted to do. We still joke around it. Like if anything ever goes wrong between Jonathan and Carol, it goes back to that puzzle, right? You're still bitter about that puzzle. And it feels to me like, well, wouldn't God feel that way that somebody's just always messing with his puzzle, right? Just think of all the human brokenness. Just think of all the bad things that human beings do to each other. Isn't God just not constantly frustrated by, by the knowledge that someone's messing with his puzzle? Isn't God himself just constantly angry, frustrated, bitter, cynical about what people have done to the puzzle that he's trying to create? And this is actually a very fun, the, the, these, that's like two roads, right, that diverge in the middle of a path. And going down the one road, I think, leads to a certain quality of discipleship. And going down that other road leads to another kind, a sort of angsty, maybe hopeless. Certainly there's traps to cynicism there, traps to living life sort of suspiciously. But what we read in our passages this morning, what we read both in Isaiah and in a sense the fulfillment of Isaiah in John is meant to reveal to us the one true creator God who with joy is intervening in the world. And that this intervention is a word as John gives it to us. This, this word becomes manifest to us. And that this word makes a difference in situations. It makes a difference in the way one thinks and lives. And there's technical language for that that we don't need to get into, but it just means something like this, that words change things. 
Like, maybe you remember the first time somebody important to you said, just, I love you. Can you remember the instantaneous, deep, and profound change? Like, those words acted on you, and then you acted. Or you can think of something just as simple as, it's time to leave. So then, right, you do certain things. You go get your coat, you get your purse, you, you do whatever, because it's time to leave. Or you hear you're hired, changes everything, right? Or you're fired, changes everything. And so the notion that these readings give us this morning is that people have responded to and based their lives upon these words. That in these speech acts, in these things that God is saying and doing, God means to make a difference through them in our lives. If you look at your passage in Isaiah, for instance, just these great insteads. I mean, it's beautiful rhetoric, but it's beyond rhetoric. It's a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. Those things are meant to work on us so that the natural, spontaneous reaction to them would occur. Or our reading in, in John, that the word made manifest to us in flesh is meant to give a reversal of one state marked by sin or distance or rebellion. It's meant to bring light to what is often an inner darkness, a, a transformation from the power indebtedness of sin to something that feels more like dignity and freedom and usefulness in the image of God. So now I, I just want to say to you, uh, keeping it real as I always want to do, Whenever I find myself being like what feels like intellectually out of my depth, which joy does to me, or maybe even like spiritually or emotionally out of my depth, when I, when I feel like there's something that stands on the other side of a threshold that I can't quite get to, my default position is always honesty. Like that, I feel like I can stand in that. When I, when I feel like, you know, there's something theological in any, whatever the topic might be, and I, I just can't quite get my head wrapped around it, or my heart, or my emotions wrapped around it, I, f I find myself going to just honesty. And so I tried to sit this week with just kind of an honesty. And so what I can sort of testify based on that honesty, what I could sort of put my hands over my heart and say is that I think I have experienced joy in salvation, in my apprenticeship to Jesus, and in him, quote, using me. You might say mission, or you might say otherliness. So let me just say a word about those things. I actually was a pretty big time sinner. I know you'd never know it now. This boyish, charming face. Um, but I was actually a pretty big time sinner from about, 12 or 13 to 19 when I was converted. A lot to be ashamed of, a lot of bad stuff, a lot of stuff that would have shamed my parents, a lot of things that were dangerous that could have harmed myself and others, a lot of substance abuse. But now I'm 61, and I was, I was 19 when I was converted. It's a long time ago. But when I sit and just think honestly, I remember the joy. I mean, it gives me like goosebumps right now. I remember the joy of knowing that my sins were forgiven. 
And that there was this God who accepted me where I was, not only very far from him, but like going the opposite direction. I remember feeling for the first time the sort of release and liberty that Isaiah 61 prefigures. And those of you who are from Southern California and anywhere near my age will remember probably the Jesus movement. And you remember Calvary Chapel, and that sort of thing. And, and I know that, you know, upon reflection, you know, there's lots of criticism these days that sociologists, religion, and theologians, and others make of the Jesus movement and the vineyard and stuff. And I get it. I'm not impatient with it. It's fine. It's life. It's what happens. But I just want to tell you, my experience, early to mid-70s, it was full of joy, absolutely full of joy. There were so many people like me, addicted to drugs, you know, living out all kinds of, you know, sexual fantasies and stuff. And to know that, like, God really loved us and forgive, forgave us, it was full of joy. And I know the vineyard gets lots of criticism these days, but I witnessed with my own eyes innumerable people get healed and saw the joy of people who thought that they could never have a baby, get pregnant and have a baby. I saw people with all kinds of diseases get healed and it kind of flooded the place with joy. There were tons of testimonies about what God was doing in people's lives and to this day, when I'm out on the patio and almost once a week, one of you will walk up to me and say, I never thought a church like this could exist and then you'll begin to tell me what God is doing in your life and almost always, in our case, it's not so much people coming to faith for first time but people thinking I never thought I could find my way back to any sort of kind of Christianity and I am doing it here and there's a genuine joy in that or when I think of my own apprenticeship to Christ. Uh, for me, you know, being a young athlete, I kind of liken it to the moments where you know, to think of basketball or something that, you know, if you're gonna shoot basketball consistently well, you can't have your elbow flying out out here. It has to be in a right position. And I can remember hitting a few shots in a row and realizing, hey, like I think I'm learning this. And my apprenticeship to Jesus feels the same way. When I feel like a, a little breakthrough in my ruined soul or when there comes to me a little mending in the issues of my life that have been devastated by sin, or when a relationship is repaired, or I get a little more deeply that sense of my new identity in Christ, my calling and role, I can honestly say that those little moments bring joy to me. When I find myself just sort of inch by inch learning to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God, they feel like those little boyish breakthroughs of learning to do something right in athletics. I feel like, man, those little bits of spiritual progress for me, they just bring a lot of joy. And then lastly, mission. And by mission, I don't mean just what goes out from us in the terms of you know, writing checks or giving money or going out from us as missionaries, but I more mean the, the quality of being where you know that God is using you, or to put it the other way around, where you know that you're kind of successfully being his servant and being used for the sake of others. Like if I think of the last few months, and I've, I've said this to our refugee team, but I'll say it in public now. Like, I can't think of anything that's brought more joy to my heart than knowing what we've been doing with that refugee family. It just makes me happy. I don't know what else. I just, every time I see something we're doing, I feel this spark of joy. Or whenever we're helping anybody, whenever I'm used by God to help somebody, I feel this little spark of joy. And this is what this picture in Isaiah 61 
is trying to paint to us. It's, you know, had we been Jewish readers of it, we would have known that it's alluding to Jubilee, to this cycle in which the weak and the powerless and the marginalized are made whole. They experience the good news of this instead. And like whenever I see that breaking out, you were nameless, refugee family, but now you're named. It just brings a little spark of joy to me. When I hear the principal from Sonora stand here and tell us what she did, it just brings a little spark of joy to me. So just keeping it real, nothing I buy does that, not really. And nothing that I can pay for in terms of an experience where I can buy an experience, it just, I don't know, it might have the quality of happiness to it. It might have the quality of um, taking my mind off of something. I don't mean to say that it doesn't have some positive aspects to it, but it's never quite the same thing as that, those little sparks of joy of when I knew I was forgiven, with those moments where I can see I'm making little progress with Jesus, and those moments where I can see that my little progresses for Jesus are being experienced by others as for their good. I can say on that level, I think I get joy. But on another level, I feel like there's this, like, this big thing that maybe is yet to be lived into. And like holding that in sort of a joyful balance where it doesn't produce guilt and shame or self-condemnation in you to, to think that there's maybe something yet to be lived into there. But if we can attach to it a girlish or a boyish, a childlikeness, in which we're experiencing what we can now while living into it, I think that's a good thing. So my kind of final thought for this morning is whenever we get into Advent, of course, like you all, I start thinking of Advent and, and Christmas carols, and, and I think of this one especially, you know, this old hymn, God Rest You, Merry Gentlemen. So, you know, it says, God rest you, merry gentlemen, let nothing you dismay, for Jesus Christ our Savior was born upon this day to save us from Satan's power, when we were gone astray, O tidings of comfort and joy. So hear it just a little differently now. God rest you. May you be settled. Merry people. That's a little prayer for joy. It's a little blessing of joy. May God settle you. May you experience joy, all of you, so that in nothing you would dismay. And then this very important little word, for. What is the hope for having a settled joyful life. For Jesus Christ, our Savior, was born. And then he saves us from Satan's power. That's what we all experienced when we were converted. We didn't experience mere forgiveness, but we experienced that release of Isaiah 61. When we were living in our own personal self-created exiles, when we had gone astray, we heard this great tiding, this news, this good news, this gospel of comfort and joy. Comfort and joy, O oh, tidings of comfort and joy.